Sound problem, everybody. There, am I back? Should be back now. Okay. All right, we're back, right? Can I get a witness if we're back? I'm on a delay, though, so I won't know if, if we're back in time for a little bit. All right, Greg says it's working now. Awesome. Okay. So, like I said, <laughs> as I was saying, but you couldn't hear me, um, we're in Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through uh, through chapter 21, verse 32. Um, and this is going to be the first in a series of of uh, sermons and, and uh, sections in Exodus that are about laws. And and so we're going to be kind of hearing about different kinds of different kinds of laws that, that are given to Moses. When Moses, uh, we, we have this picture in our minds, right, mostly from um, Sunday school and cartoons and and those sorts of things of um of Moses going up on the mountain and, and hearing from God and, and bringing down the tablets and the tablets have the 10 commandments on them. Um, but God actually speaks the 10 commandments directly to the Israelites. They're, they're there at the mountain. That's what we looked at last week. When we looked at the 10 commandments, they're there with them. They're there in, in God's presence. They're terrified. Um, so after God gets through the 10 commandments, then they say, Moses, please, you go talk to God and, and then tell us what he said. Cause we can't, take this anymore and so Moses agrees to be a mediator he goes up on the mountain they stay behind and now these are the things that God is giving Moses this is presumably what he's writing on the tablets that um that he's he needs to tell them and God's giving them the, the these laws and so we're gonna be going through these um and it seems like what's the point of learning about these laws why should we read about all these laws why should we go into this um and the question of that is really like, what's the point of studying, of learning about Israel at all? Um, because Israel is these laws, like the nation of Israel is made up of these laws. This is what their rule of law is, because um, Israel is a true theocracy. And again, we're talking about ancient Israel, not necessarily the modern nation of Israel, but the, 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 the this time with Moses and, and with these people, they are the, the true theocracy. God is giving them these laws because he is their king. They are his people. These are his laws. And so in laying out the laws for his people, God is demonstrating his, his desire for how people should live. He's really saying, here is what I would like you to do. Here's how I would like people to live. And even things like the ceremonial law, which maybe seem silly or seem arbitrary or why would they have to do all these things? It's really laying the groundwork for the coming of Jesus and his ultimate sacrifice for us. So there is value in, the, in studying these laws, even though they don't d- apply directly to us. Right? We're not meant to go out and try to implement them. Um, we're in a different system. Um, and, and, but that doesn't mean that we ignore them. Right? It doesn't mean that we just ignore it and don't read it and don't bother. There is value in it. They're meant for our good and for our instruction. So the first section we're going to look at is about altars. He, he starts off the first thing he, after the Ten Commandments, he's going to give them instruction on is how should you worship me? Right. That's really the question is how should they worship God? What is God? How does God want to be worshipped? And he's going to give them some instruction on altars. It says this in verses 22 through 26 of Exodus 20. And Yahweh said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourself gods of gold. 
an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Okay, so there's a couple things we can highlight from this, uh, from the, this first section here. A couple things we can take away. First, he reiterates the fact that they're not to use carved images. He says, you, you heard me speak from heaven. Like, you know that I'm not in the little idol that you make. You know that I'm not in something that, that's made by human hands. You know that I'm much bigger, much scarier than that. I should not be made of an image of silver or gold. And I don't want buddies who are made of silver or gold, you know, other little gods made of silver and gold. We don't need that. The other thing he says, they should not make ornate altars, right? He's saying their altars should be of a certain kind. They should not be very ornate. This would help distinguish them from the pagan worship that they saw in Egypt and that they were going to see when they go into Canaan. These were the ways that they worshiped. They worshiped in these very ornate um, fancy altars. He wants them to have appropriate altars. He wants their altars to be made of dirt or earth. Um, they should be made of natural occurring stones. Um, they should be movable. They should be transitory, right? They would need to, to make these altars in every place that they wandered. At this point, they don't know they're going to be wandering for 40 years, uh, but it's going to be important because they're going to be wandering all over the place for 40 years. They're going to need to be able to make new altars everywhere they go. And this simple design will discourage them from worshiping the altar itself instead of God. Right? That, they, that they would not be tempted to think that the altar itself is some kind of, has some kind of power, but that God himself has the power. He also talks about them not exposing their nakedness to the altar, or that is to design the altar so as not to inadvertently expose themselves to it. And there's two reasons for this. One is that the pagan worship of the era uh, often included sexual acts, right? They should avoid any resemblance to these forms of worship and any temptation to start worshiping at their altar to Yahweh in the way that the pagans worshiped. Um, and so, so they should, should not even make it a possibility that they might be tempted to start worshiping in that way. The second reason for this is that they should just be modest and holy when going to worship the one true God. They should consider, like, I, I want to be humble, I want to be modest, I want to be holy when I'm going to worship and talk to the one true God. Okay, so that, these, are their, these are their laws about their altars. What does this teach us, though? What, is this, what does this mean for us? What can we take away from this? Well, it tells us something about how God wants to be worshipped, right? And even the fact that we're not making altars to make sacrifices, we still worship and we still worship in a certain way. And this gives us some basic principles for how we should worship. For one thing, our worship centers and our worship materials should not be overly ornate, right? It shouldn't be about the objects or the places that we are worshiping. They should not be overly fancy. They shouldn't be tempted to think that that is the thing that we are worshiping. Secondly, our worship elements should not become objects of worship themselves. Right? The things we use to worship, whether those are hymnals or whether they're Bibles or whether they're pews or seats or um, guitars, instruments, pianos, any of anything like that, they should not become the objects of worship themselves. 
And this does happen, right? It happens overtly in, in churches like the, like the Catholic Church where they have relics and they have objects that people pray to and use as, as holy objects where they are the object of worship and not God himself. Uh, but it even happens in Protestant churches as well where we uh, maybe unintentionally make things and places holy and, and worthy of worship themselves as though they are the thing we're worshiping instead of the, the, the creator that we're worshiping. It also teaches us that um, that our, our worship should be modest, humble, reverent, right? That we should take it seriously, that we should take, take God seriously when we come to worship him. Our current situation that we're in right now um, appropriately challenges our ecclesiology, right? How we think about church. That's what ecclesiology just means. How do we think about church? This is the study of church. What do we think about the church? How do we think about it? And it's clear that we we are learning that the church is not a building, right? It's something that we know, but now that we're actually living out, that it's not about the location. It's not about the building. It's not about the place that we gather. It's about the people that gather and the one we gather for. That the building can be useful and good, and it is, and I wish we could get back there, uh, but it should not be seen as necessary for Christian worship, or that a location is not necessary, that, that we are the location, or that we are the temples of God, we, we, that we together, as the people of God, are temples to God. And so we don't need a building to worship. All right, the next section we're looking at is called, I'm um, titled, Just, Just Slavery. And that's not like just slavery. That's like just slavery, like justice. And we're going to look at verses 21 through 11. It says this. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. For, she does not pl for if she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Okay. That's a crazy section. Right? This is a crazy section of scripture for us to process for ourselves. And he's talking, remember, he's talking to former, former slaves. He's giving slaves, for, former slaves, slavery laws. And the question that we naturally have is, why wouldn't God just say, um, hey, remember when you were slaves? And they say, yeah, we, re we remember that. Uh, that was bad, right? Yeah, that was bad. We, we did not like being slaves. Uh, okay, so no more slavery. That seems like a simple solution. 
to this problem. But the, but the difficulty here is that slavery in this day was an established and seemingly, at the time, unavoidable facet of the economy. It was just the way that things worked everywhere. The, the Hebrews themselves, even though they had come out of slavery, could not have, have foreseen a world that had no slavery. They did not understand that as possible. And in its day and at its time, at different times in history, slavery or servitude, as we might call it, was not always evil. At its best, it looked more like employment than slavery. The problem that we have in understanding these passages is that we experienced pure evil slavery in our country. That we have a history of brutal evil slavery that is not at all what this looks like. It is, as we'll see in these passages we just read, they were not following these laws, and they, in fact, even edited the Bibles that they gave to slaves in, in the Americas in order, to, in order to keep them from reading sections just like this. They cut out most of Exodus and a lot of other things, parts of the Bible. Um, this is, a, this is a, a cover or an inside cover of, um, of, one of, the, of one of these Bibles that they actually published. At the time, this is from 1807. It says, "Select parts of the Holy Bible for the use of Negro slaves in the in the British West India Isles Islands." So they would actually edit these things out because they knew that they weren't following them. They knew that they weren't following these; that they were doing a much more brutal job. That, that this idea of freedom and 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 justice and and all these things were were not part of how they were acting. And so. They publish. They they just cut parts right out of the Bible. Which as soon as you do that, you know that you're off base. Um, and that's part of why we're we're not avoiding this, right? We're not. We're gonna read this. We're gonna go through this. We're gonna see what's in here. Um, the EFCA. I'm gonna start with the EFCA. The ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible, actually has a whole section in its preface about the difficulty of understanding this concept. Um, it has a it has a whole section. Um, talking about how they chosen to translate um, words like slave and servant, um, the words that they're translating into those from the Hebrew and the Greek, because this the the institution was so different than what we've experienced in our history. And so I encourage you to read that. It is in the study guides. I was made aware that I forgot to send out the study guides this week. I got a little distracted with all of the drive-ins uh, service stuff that was going on. Um, so I did send them out at the last minute this morning. So um, they are available there. And, and uh, Pastor Jason always posts them on the website as well. So you, you can, can get this. Uh, but it's got this great, like, it's pretty long. That's why I didn't, I'm not going to read it. But um, talks about just the difficulty in making these translations because it's not what we have experienced as slavery. Is not really what they're talking about. And we'll see a couple of things right here, right off the bat from this section. First off, they're talking about purchase slaves, right? They can't kidnap, be kidnapped or stolen. He's saying when you purchase a slave, meaning someone is selling themselves or selling their children in, into servitude to go serve someone to pay a debt or to earn money in some way, that was the system, right? So you're purchasing a slave from them. Someone would often, would often put themselves in servitude in order to pay off their own debts. So the system that we have of, uh, that, that we had in our country of kidnapping uh, people and, and bringing them across the ocean, uh, that's not at all what this is talking about. And right away, they say that's, that would not be okay. They have to be purchased. They also 
had a six-year time limit. They had a six-year limit uh, that each slave could only be held for six years. However much you purchased them for, six years was the was the maximum that they could uh, serve, regardless of how big their debt, how big of a debt they were paying off. Throughout history, slavery was abused by um, assistance of compounding debt that would keep a person enslaved for decades or even a lifetime. But here God says, six years maximum, the seventh year, they go free, regardless of what, what kind of debts they've incurred. He also talks about intact families, right? That if the, the person comes in with a family, they go out with a family. Now, he does make this provision that if they come in and the master gives them a, a, a wife, that, that then if they choose to leave, that, that she stays there. But if, if the man knew that going in, he could choose whether or not to accept that proposition. He would kind of have some idea of, is this something that I, that I, w- that I want? Do I want to stick around? Do I want to keep working for and serving this master? Is he good or not? And so the last thing we see in there is that a slave could choose to stay. Or a, a, a slave or a servant could choose to stay. If the master was good to him, um, then he could choose to remain. He could, he, but it's his choice to stay. If he would choose to say, he's saying, hey, he's, he's good to me. He keeps me well fed, well, well sheltered. Um, I, I'm happy to be working here is essentially what we're saying, that he would continue to work there. And this concept of a servant choosing to stay with his master, choosing to continue to live in his home and to work for him, um, really sets up the concept of our description as believers as servants or slaves of Christ. Again, this word that we're going to read in the ESV, they continue to, to translate as servant, could be translated either, either way. Um, so we see it in a couple places. Paul introduces himself as a servant of Christ almost every time. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set out for the gospel, apart for the gospel of God. That's Romans 1.1, how he's introducing himself. In Philippians 1.1, he introduces himself as to, and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4.5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We can also translate as, that as master. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Right? Again, he's talking about himself as a, as a servant or a slave. And he's not the only one who calls himself this. James, in his, his letter, introduces himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter introduces himself this way in, in 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1, as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And in Revelation 1.1, it says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Saying this is the revelation that was given to Jesus to show his servants or his slaves, meaning us, that we are servants or slaves who have chosen to stay, chosen to give our lives to him. Now, he also makes special provision for female slaves, right? He's, he's giving them special consideration. And at first, this section sounds shocking and, and seemingly unjust, uh, possibly. That, that w- that's partly because we're not understanding the context behind this. Um, first off, it's a vast improvement over female slavery in the surrounding world at the time. 
that's an important thing to keep in mind is that um, that women have often been oppressed and, and, and put down. The fact that there are certain rights that are put in place here is actually an improvement. That this is this is the women's rights of the day, an, a vast improvement in women's rights. The other thing we must understand is that nearly all marriage was arranged marriage at the time, and it involved a form of payment. Uh, in much of the world, the payment would go in the other direction, right? That fathers would pay a dowry when their daughters were wed to help with the expense of another mouth to feed. But in, in, in here, the daughter is being bought, is being pay, purchased, is being paid for. The fact that, that a man would be paying the father for the bride, uh, for his daughter, indicates that she has value, right? God is affirming the value of women here, even if it sounds strange to our ears. It says that if a man found that he was not pleased with his maidservant, he, could, he couldn't just sell her off. He couldn't do whatever he wanted. Uh, he must let the family, her family buy her back. And if the master did not treat her well, she can go free. Right, The minute that she's not being treated well, she, she can go free. Essentially, this section is saying that masters must treat the, their female slaves better than their male slaves. They're saying he's got to treat her better. So we might ask ourselves, how can we apply these concepts, right? We don't have slavery in our, in our culture, um, certainly not widespread. Obviously, there are things like human trafficking. But in our culture, there's not widespread accepted slavery. So how might we apply these concepts? We're not masters and, and there are, or servants. And, and so how do we have, how, how can we apply this section? Well, first off, by being generally fair, reasonable, and just in our dealings. Right, that we can generally, as, as we deal with people, as we interact with um, people, we can be fair, we can be reasonable, we can be just. That's essentially what this section is saying. Is treat people fairly. Treat people justly. Be reasonable. Don't be oppressive. We can also apply it to, um, to employer-employee relationships. It's a similar thing that we do with in, in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul talks about this because even by, by Paul's day, slavery wasn't uh, an... an avoidable reality of life and so he speaks to this as well in ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9 he says bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would christ not by the way of eye service as people pleasers but as bond servants of christ doing the will of god from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the lord and not to man Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same thing, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So Paul also talks about this idea of just being fair, being just, um, being reasonable, uh, and honoring God above everything else. That re whatever your situation is, whatever your employment situation is, you have a boss or you are the boss. Either way, we're treating one another as children of God. Right? That we're we're recognizing that whatever our situation, whatever our authority structure is, that that we are people made in the image of God, worthy of respect, worthy of honor, worthy of um, basic rights and, and and goodness and being good and kind to one another regardless of what the structure might be. And that's what Paul lays out here. That's really what's laid out here in Exodus when it speaks to um, slavery laws for former slaves. All right, we'll move on to our next section. It's getting a lot easier, capital punishment. 
Um, <laughs> these are some wild sections uh, today. So we're going to be in Exodus 21, verses 12 through 32. He says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes another with a stone or his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, and, but he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let that slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go because of the tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox scores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Okay. So that what we see in this section, and it's key to understand, is cold justice. Right? This is justice. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It can be brutal, but it is what people demand when people see these things this is what they expect they expect punishment they see crime they expect punishment this is justice and there's all kinds of things in this section that are introduced for the first time really in history uh to the justice system and in and exist in our justice system even to this day um, concepts like premeditation right god takes god's law takes motive into account and this is not common among surrounding people groups of the time. God says that what a person intended matters. And our justice system says the same thing. That the, the, our whole concept of leveling various crime based on intention and premeditation originates here in Scripture. This is where that idea originated. We also see the life of the unborn affirmed for the first time. For the first time in Scripture, although certainly not the last, the life of those yet to be born is valued as equal to the life of those who have been born. 
right? The the punishment that's laid out is the same for whether it's an unborn or a child or or a, a person who has been born. That the person in the womb is equal to the person outside of the womb. He also bans uh, brutal slavery, right? He says brutality and slavery is banned, that if a master were to harm his slave, he or she would be set free immediately. That even one time he harms, he harms that slave, they are set free immediately. We also see negligence spoken of here, right? That a deadly ox could not be kept around. It would need to be destroyed. If a man knowingly kept a dangerous ox or presumably any other animal and it killed someone, he, could, he would also be put to death, right? Showing that we are responsible for the things that have been put in our charge. And that applies all over the place. That applies to this day, that the things that we are in charge of, we're responsible for, and that when we're negligent, the law holds us to account. Our laws hold us, hold us to account, even in this country, for negligence. Here again, God's laws, these, these ideas are introduced. Now, often, a lot, of, a lot of these are all about capital punishment, right? That this is the thing that, that, that is punished. And there are going to be more things that are, that are punished by capital punishment um, as we move forward. But this really introduces and sets up one of the problems that occurs in Jesus' day. That in Jesus' day, he lived under Roman rule, right? He was in Israel, but Israel was, was uh, occupied by the Roman government. That the, that the Romans had, had, the Roman Empire had spread to cover Israel. And so when the Roman government came into a, uh, a new territory, they would allow the people to generally keep their own laws. Whatever their system was, they would basically let them keep their own laws except they would remove the ability to uh, execute people, that they would take capital punishment as only under the authority of the Roman government. They might impose more, more laws as well, but capital punishment was something that was not allowed, uh, aside from according to Roman rule and, and Roman law. And so, as we'll see later in Scripture, um, this becomes a problem, right? Because there's a lot of things in Israel that are punishable by death, and in Jesus' day, they couldn't execute the law of Moses. So they had all sorts of people walking around who should have been put to death. And the Pharisees continually asked Jesus about this problem. They continued to bring people before him who should be punished by death according to the law of Moses. And they want to see what Jesus will do. Presumably, if Jesus is as pious as he seems to be, he would want to enact the law of Moses, thereby violate Roman law, and they could turn him in. Right? They could turn him in if he violated Roman rule. He, they could turn him in, and the Roman government would deal with him. They continually try to trap him based on these laws themselves. But we don't see Jesus do that. He never actually subverts Roman rule. As much as he disagreed with the Roman government, as much as the Roman government was evil and uh, certainly did not follow God's laws, did not acknowledge Yahweh as God, uh, had, had very low morals, was not, uh, was, was not God's law, he never, he never opposed them. He allowed the Roman government to do exactly what it was set up to do. He allowed them to rule in their place. He acknowledged that, that, that they had been put in place by God, even though it wasn't God's system. <coughs> he recognized that God could remove them if he wanted to. And so he allowed that to, to be the case, and he, he, he never challenged them on these issues. The thing he did challenge was he asked his people to go beyond justice, right? The Old Testament had laid out, here's what justice looks like. He asks people to go beyond justice to mercy. 
We see this in Matthew chapter 5. Oh, hold on. I don't have Matthew chapter 5 in front of me here. Let's see if this works. Yeah, there we go. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's an interesting thing that Jesus says. He starts this passage by saying, you have heard that it was said. And that, that always kind of makes me laugh. And it, it makes me, I think that Jesus said it ironically. Because he is the one who said it. Right? When he says, you've heard that it was said, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about this passage. Right? That, that when he says, um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He's talking about the passage we just read. But Jesus is the word of God. Right? He was with the father when these things were said he is in the word and so he is the one that said it and then he says you have heard that it was said he really should say remember when i said right <laughs> and and so he's quoting this and then he's saying essentially that is justice but you can go beyond justice right you can go further than that is he saying that the law of moses was wrong no he's saying the law is justice the law is what is right the law is is justice enacted that when someone does wrong they should be punished and when crime is committed it should be punished and even pr punished in this extreme way of almost every all of these things are capital punishment right death punished punishable by death what jesus is saying is that the law of moses does not eliminate the possibility of mercy in fact it it makes mercy possible and it makes mercy meaningful because mercy is costly when we show mercy to someone when we withhold that punishment whatever it might be it only counts because we are taking something from ourselves or that we're taking that ability for us to enact the justice that we desire we're taking that away um, when a wrong is done but mercy is powerful because of the just punishment that the law of the law has been subverted. The just punishment of the law is subverted. That's why mercy is powerful, because the person realizes that they have been given mercy, that punishment has been withheld, that it has been paid for. The reason that Jesus' death on the cross is powerful, the reason that his, his sacrifice for us is powerful is because God is showing us mercy in pouring out that punishment on Jesus, that he took the punishment that we should have taken. It cost him something. If there is nothing that we are being saved from, then mercy is, no, is not worth anything. Then mercy isn't mercy. It's only there because of the law. Right? We, we, we rejoice because we've seen, received mercy, because we have been spared. That the law makes mercy powerful the way that it should be because justice is what, in our in our flesh in our our core what we want to happen 
but we can access that powerful mercy that Jesus demonstrated on the cross when he died for us, that he gave himself for us. He died for us so that we could live again and so that then we can pass that mercy on to others. Right? If we received mercy from Jesus, then we are able to dispense mercy to others as he commands us to. So right now, um, we're going to wrap it up with how should we then live, and then we're going to take communion remembering that sacrifice for us. How should we then live? We've got three options for you, possible takeaways from today's message. Number one, allow objects and places to enhance your worship, but not become the object of your worship. This is critical. The, as we worship God, we keep our eyes on the one who is worthy of worship and not get distracted by the things we use to worship. Number two, be fair and reasonable, just in your business dealings. And number three, show mercy to others as Jesus has shown mercy to you. I want to pray and then we'll, um, we'll share in communion together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your sacrifice for us that frees us from the, the consequences of the law, the punishment of the law the justice that you um, that you lay out here in Scripture. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace that you have for us. And we remember that now as we take communion together, remembering your broken body and shed blood for us. Amen. Right now I'm going to play some music uh, from Sherry Whiteley, our, our pianist, and, uh, and you can prepare your hearts for communion. If you still need to go gather your materials, you can do that. This will just be a, a minute, a couple minutes, and then um, and, and you can kind of pray, prepare your hearts, and then we'll take communion together when we come back. <laughs>